to come up and we'll do the questions before we get stuck into this afternoon's session. Sure. This is a good this is a good question because it'll give us some insights into who Jenny is and and where she has come from. So the question is how did you become a Christian, especially given that you've shared with us already that you are from a non relatively mm. non Christian family? Yes, that's right. Um, so I um, I'm fifty two, so that's kind of you know, how long I've been alive and uh, <laughs> it's usually the way it works, isn't it? <laughs> And I'm from the generation, or my parents are from a generation where, um, as even though they weren't church-going people, they were from middle-class stock and they thought it would be appropriate and right for their kids to go to Sunday school. So, um, and we were baptised in the Anglican church, it was the right thing to do anyway. So uh, we were living in a suburb in Sydney and mum and dad, one or the other, would drop us off at Sunday school on Sunday morning. And by the grace of God, it was at a church where, where... the gospel was taught. It was a church called Christ Church St Ives. I don't know if you know that name. There's no need, no reason that you would, but you might know Dudley Ford, the name Dudley Ford, Dudley Elizabeth Ford. They were the, he was the minister of that church. And, um, and so from a very, from a young age, even though I was living in a, a family that was, uh, that, where Christ was never really a feature at all, I was going off to Sunday school. And, and like many children, what I heard people saying I believed if they said that it was good to read the Bible I thought okay it's good to read the Bible if they said that Jesus was God I thought okay Jesus is God if they told me that Jesus died for my sins I thought okay that's the beauty of teaching children generally children when you tell them these things they will believe it and so I did and so I I would I was told to read my Bible or it was good to read my Bible so I had a little good news for modern man Bible um, with a soft cover, and I would read the Gospels. And I became quite religious about it. I would read that um, one part of the Gospel every night. It didn't really mean anything to me, but I thought, well, that's what they say I've got to do. I, I better do it. I would pray the Lord's Prayer every night. Again, it didn't really mean anything to me necessarily. I wasn't really understanding, but that's what they said I should do. And then at Christchurch St. Ives, they had this youth group that was very well-designed, and they had um, leaders who were well-trained, and they were not there to babysit us. They were there to nurture us in our understanding of the gospel. That's what they did. So I was going to youth group, and I was being encouraged and taught by young... Well, they seemed very old to me. They are probably about 17 or 18. And they, were, they, were, they, were, they cared for us, and they, they would teach us, and they would pick us up and take us, and take us places and, and all the time with an open Bible. And so I was, it was just very natural for me. And then in conjunction with that, I went to the local high school, St Ives High. And the assistant minister at Christchurch St Ives, the Anglican church, would come and teach scripture. Now, scripture was optional, and so you could either have a free period, that's always a very popular option, or you can go to scripture. Not so popular option, but there were a little group of us who would go, and we would go to one of the, the science rooms. Science rooms always had high desks and the Bunsen burners and all that kind of thing. And, uh, and there, the scripture teacher, uh, as well, uh, alongside what I'd heard in, in Sunday school and youth group, um, he explained what it meant to be a Christian. And uh, he said, it's, it, you, just because you go to church doesn't make you a Christian. Just because you have been brought up in a Christian country doesn't make you a Christian. He said, a Christian is someone who believes 
that Jesus is the Son of God and he came to this world and he died for our sins and he was raised to life and all who believe in him have life. Do you believe that? And I thought, yeah, I believe that. And it was the most natural, logical thing for me to pray the so-called prayer, you know, the prayer, um, and um, to, to commit to following Jesus. I did that in that science room. And uh, from then on, uh, I just continued to uh, be nurtured and discipled by leaders and to, to keep growing. Uh, so in some ways, um, I came into the kingdom of God very smoothly. It just seemed very natural and logical and rational. I know a lot of people come into the kingdom kicking and screaming. C.S. Lewis describes himself that way. Um, and some people come in quite uh, traumatically. Um, I remember Simon Manchester, the church where I, I used to go a few years ago at St Thomas's in Sydney, he said that um, sometimes when you become a Christian, it's like Jesus is, hello, and, and we say, who is it? Oh, it's Jesus, come on in. And, and, and it's not good theology, but we, you, know, you become Christians very, it just very naturally. That might come through family, it might come through you know, my experience. Sometimes it might be like, hello, who is it? Jesus, go away. And so Jesus will go, go and get into his bulldozer and he'll knock the back wall down. <laughs> and that's sometimes how people come into the kingdom, through painful circumstances where everything is knocked down and where else are they to go? Because he has the words of eternal life. So for me, it was not traumatic. I think that um, now 35 or... 37 or whatever years later, um, it hasn't always been a smooth ride, mind you. Um, in my 20s, I had a very serious relationship with a non-Christian man, and, um, and I knew it was wrong, and I knew it was unhelpful, but it's still, I still had that relationship, and it, uh, did, uh, it, it did me no good whatsoever, even though I wanted to marry him, and he was going to marry me, and we were engaged. It was a very traumatic time, um, and I had to question everything that I believed in as a Christian. I had to ask myself, am I a Christian? Yes. Are you living as a Christian? In some ways, yes. In some ways, no. Well, are you going to start living as a Christian? Yeah. So I had to, I had to sort of go back to square one for that. Um, the, the fact that most of my family are still not Christians is a source of great heartache for me. Um, my dad isn't a Christian yet. Uh, my two brothers and sister are not Christians or, or their, their husbands and wives. My nieces and nephews. This is being recorded, by the way. Can this part not be not go out anywhere? Jenny was speaking, and it, it it never ceases to amaze me how God has a plan, and just how Jenny became a Christian. And it, it wasn't just one person no. saying the right thing at the right time. There was a yeah. lot of people all coming together, mm. having salty conversations at the mm. right time when the opportunity arose, and. I think that speaks to all of us that we've got to make the most of those opportunities because we don't know mm. what God's plan is and those opportunities are part of his plan yeah. and we need to act exactly. on them. Thanks and I, for and I do that. want to say thank you on behalf of children and youth mm. who don't come from Christian homes. Thank you to all of you who teach Sunday school, who teach in schools, who meet with younger people. Thank you because uh, people like me would never have heard the gospel otherwise. So on behalf of those, uh, I want to say mm. thanks to you and thanks to God. Mm. Absolutely. Um, Jenny alluded to the, second, the next question, which is 
a challenging question for a lot of us who have been in these situa this situation, but in what ways can a married mother of four live more Christ-like with a non-Christian husband whose feelings must also be respected? Mm, that, that, is, uh, that is very common, I think, uh, in our churches. Uh, if you notice, well, I mean, I go to various churches for different reasons and there are often a lot more women than men and a lot more women sitting on their own, and it's quite likely that they're doing that because their husbands are at home. Uh, it's, I think it's a really difficult situation. Um, uh, my, my mum and my dad are in this situation. And, uh, and uh, there are some passages that help us to think about how to respond to this situation. Um, for example, uh, uh, the Apostle Peter writes to the church... He says he's writing to people in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, you know, modern Turkey. He's writing to Christians who are facing persecution because they're Christians and he's wanting to encourage them to know who they are and what they have in Christ so they can actually live lives that are holy. But what he says um, in chapter 3, so he's writing to different groups of people. In chapter 3 he addresses husbands and wives and um, wives and husbands and um, he writes about women who are married to non-Christians. And he says, wives... So the context is that he's talking about... Well, see, there's a verse earlier on in chapter 2 where he says, um, Dear friends, he says, I urge you... This is verse 11, 2 verse 11. I urge you as aliens and strangers in the world to abstain from sinful desires which war against your soul, live such good lives among the pagans, that is, non-Christians that though they accuse you of doing wrong, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day he visits us. He's talking about how we live our lives so that even though people are criticising because we're going against the flow, he's saying that there's something about the Christian life that stands out. A little bit like Paul says in Philippians about um, shine like stars in the universe as you hold out or you hold on to the word of life. He's saying, live such good lives among non-Christians that though they criticise you, he says, and this is quite cryptic, I think, they will glorify God on the day he visits us. I think that means that though they have criticised you, that they see your good life, they are drawn to God, they're drawn to Jesus because of how you are living, and they too become Christians, and then they glorify God on the day that he visits us. That, that is when Jesus comes back. So he writes that to Christians generally. Then he, um, he talks about different categories of people. He talks about um, slaves submit yourselves to, to those who, who mistreat you. As Christians, that is what you are to do, even though it seems so unfair. But then he says that this is what Jesus has done. So Jesus is our model. We follow in his steps, he says in verse 21. And then he says in chapter 3, verse 1, wives in the same way. Be submissive to your husbands. I mean, the submissive is a tricky one. In the context of a Christian marriage, I don't think it's as tricky. But in the context of a non-Christian marriage, it might be trickier because the husband, your husband might be asking you to do things that go against what you believe as a Christian. Like, don't go to church. Don't be part of a Bible study. You can't be involved. Be submissive to your husband so that if any of them do not believe the word, they may be won over without words by the behaviour of their wives when they see the purity and reverence of your lives. He goes on to say, your beauty should not come from outward adornment. Instead, it should be that of an inner self, the unfading beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which is of great worth in God's sight. That may mean 
that um, even though we know that there is a priority of meeting together on a, on a Sunday, if that's when your church meets, and if your husband is saying, I don't want you to go, it might be better not to go. It might be better not to go. Um, at the same time, praying that his heart will be softened to at least be happy for you to go. It might mean uh, if there is a, an argument about being invo- too involved in the church that you back out of some of those involvements. I've seen my mum and my dad with that. Um, dad uh, used to be quite antagonistic and quite difficult uh, when it came to mum's involvement. And mum is not one to push. And uh, I've often thought of mum as being a 1 Peter 3 woman. Um, she is gentle and she, she does want to submit to dad. And I see that dad is um, he's coming around. So for many, many years, uh, he made it quite difficult for mum to go to church. You know, it would just be easy if she didn't. Now he's going to church with her. So there's movement. Now, if I see now, if I look now, I think, oh, it's no, there's no movement because I still don't see dad really wanting to know Jesus at all. Um, but if I see in the big picture that up until maybe five, ten years ago, he wasn't even going near the church, um, then there is movement. And um, I do trust in God, and whatever happens, I know that God is good and he always does what is right, and I, and I know that. But I, uh, but I keep praying that mum will be wise in how she relates to dad. That, and I pray for all my family that um, they'll have good Christian conversations. I don't mean like good Christian as in moral or whatever. I mean good conversations with Christians outside the family. So that they might have an incidental conversation with someone, they find out they're a Christian and it's a good conversation. That they have good contact with Christians. I pray that for Dad. That there'll be people at the church who will actually seek him out and, and show love and kindness to him. Because that's that really that wins people over. So for those of you who are in that situation, um, it's, I know from watching Mum, it's not easy. Um, so keep praying for wisdom, keep praying for your husband, pray that he'll have good connections with other men who are Christians and, and live a life the way that Peter says of submitting and living a life that really promotes the gospel in your relationship. So... Um, they may be won over without words by the behaviour, by your behaviour. That's not a silver bullet necessarily. Uh, it might continue to be hard and you may see no movement of the gospel in their hearts at all. Uh, but I think that helps us to, to approach it, trusting in the Lord, keeping on praying and, um, and uh, who knows what God will do. Thanks, Jenny. And our last question um, is probably a common theme again for many of us. How do I develop evangelistic opportunities when I'm absorbed in a Christian world? I work with Christians, my kids are at the Christian school and all my friends are Christians. Should I pray for opportunities when I don't see many in reality? Mm. Uh, I work in a a Bible college and it's often referred to as a Christian bubble. (laughs) And uh, uh, being in a Christian bubble is very comfortable. You can pray on the grass, no one's going to stare at you as if you're weird. Um, 
you can um, you can open the Bible anywhere and people will be on the same page, literally and metaphorically. They they know what you're talking about. They want to know more. So it's lovely. There's it, something very comfortable about that. And I would imagine that working in a Christian school and being part of a, a strong church and that all your friends are Christians, there's something very comfortable about that. But I think it's very important for us to get outside our Christian bubbles. Um, how do I get outside of my Christian bubble? Uh, well, my, not my family non-Christians, generally. So that immediately takes me out of the bubble. Um, some of my friends from when I worked with Qantas um, are non-Christians, so I, I try and keep up with them. If you can't see a way out of your Christian bubble, I think there still are ways. Um, even, uh, like sometimes, uh, I love coffee shops, and I, I sometimes take my Bible and have my quiet time with my prayer journal in a coffee shop. Now, People might think, well, how on earth can you concentrate in a coffee shop? But amazingly, I can really zone out, or I can zone into this and zone out of the noise. But the other thing that I, I, I love and I look for is that I try and go to just uh, one or two coffee shops and get to know the people who are serving me, the barista and the, and the, you know, the, the waitresses and, and things like that. I learn their names. I have my Bible open. And um, I, I start to develop a relationship. It may not be a deep relationship, but I'm, I'm looking for opportunities. And uh, just recently, one of the cafes that I go to near the college that I work at, um, I, I meet there with students. We pray together sometimes. We read our Bibles there together. We might do some preparation there together, among other things. And Susie, the barista and the owner of the cafe, she's noticing this. And, uh, and she's not saying very much, but she asks about the college. And when she sees lots of students um, at one time, she says, oh, is it research week? Oh, is it exam time? So she knows what's going on. And um, uh, about, I think about a year ago, um, she came up to me and she said, Jenny, she said, can you pray for my mother? That was out of the clear blue. I never talked about... My, my Christian life personally, I'd never even talked to her about anything like that, but she'd seen the Bible and she'd seen us praying, you know, like Christians praying together and she'd put two and two together. Now, what, what the, the um, two, to two, two and two was, I don't know. I think she thought that I must have been some kind of leader, in which case, because she's from a, like an Orthodox background, uh, that, um, you know, maybe I have more pull in that direction. I don't know. <laughs> Uh, but I said to her, I said, absolutely, I will, I will pray for you, Mum, and I'll also pray for you. And so, so now there seemed to be the door was opening a little bit. She opened the door, God opened the door, and so I stepped through, and then I would now start, I start to initiate conversations with her. How's your mum? I'm praying for you. How can I pray for you in, in particular? Now, with Susie, what she's done is she's backed off. So I, I wrote a little card when her mum died. I wrote a little card and, uh, and I gave it to her. And, uh, well, I didn't give it to her. I left it with someone. And I didn't hear anything back from her at all, which I didn't, I didn't do for that reason. But um, uh, I asked her, I, I, I hope she got the card. So I said, did you get the card? She goes, oh, yes. End of conversation. Okay, now I back off. Because I need to be gracious. I need to respect her. I still go there, still read my Bible. Still, I'm praying for opportunities. I'm looking for the opportunities, but I'm, I need to respect her space in her workplace as much as anything else. So how do we get out, outside of our Christian bubbles? Um, for some people, uh, they might join the local um, sport team, netball team. Uh, I don't know if there are teams here that you can join. 
Um, there are other social clubs that you can join, and this is a way of getting out of your bubble. Like, uh, I don't know, craft, pottery, I don't know what the things you have, but these are the things that will help you to get outside of your bubble. Now, the other issue we have is busyness. So we've got work, we've got family, we've got church, and now you've got to add something else in. But we've got to work out how we can get out of that bubble, how we can actually um, have those relationships with people, because how, how are they going to hear the gospel? They need, there is a need for Christians to be out there. And uh, so it's a wonderful thing to work amongst Christians. Um, although I always think, I think at SNBC uh, that people are Christians, but sometimes Christian organisations are not always filled with Christians. So we mustn't ever assume that everyone we work with and, uh, are Christians. Uh, but if they are, we've got to find other ways of doing that. And pray, you can pray for for opportunities uh, to come to make those opportunities or, or where, you know, pray for um, way, a way to um, get outside that bubble as well. Yeah? Yep, that's right. Yes, so how, how do we relate? I, I'm more and more conscious that how I relate to people at the shops... How I relate because if they're a regular contact, who knows where that's going to, to head? Yes. Yes. So if there's a warmth about us, if there's a winsomeness about us, if we're if and if, if our radar is up as Christians, so that we are we're always wanting to make the most of those opportunities, um, they'll they'll probably come. Yeah. Uh, but I think it, for some people they particularly outside the bubble, and for others, we're more in the bubble. We've just got to be a bit creative. Yeah. They really do. They really do. That's right. And, you know, it's, it's not just about what we say. It's how we listen. People, most people are not good listeners. And we need as Christians, to be good listeners. I mean, we're so quick to text and to email and to Facebook and, and uh, we're not very good at face-to-face stuff. We're not very good at listening. And so if someone is listened to, they'll always come back for more because people aren't often listened to very well. That's a way of love, isn't it, to be good listeners? Yeah. Thanks. I'll ask Jenny one more question which actually will lead us into this afternoon session which is about um, a topic that she's very passionate about, um, one-to-one ministry and you, you've got the um, talk guide in your book. Um, but by way of introduction yeah. to that topic, Jenny, yeah. can you tell us um, about your personal experience being part of one-to-one ministry mm. um, and how has that enabled you to grow in your faith? Yes. Now, thank you. I'll just grab my notes, but I might just... uh, We'll see See how we go. Um, I mentioned I became a Christian in uh, in the Sunday school youth group. In the youth group, so I was around 15. And so my first experience of discipleship, receiving discipleship more than being in doing discipleship, if you like, was uh, uh, Sharon. Sharon was... um, uh, well, she was about 22, and she was a teacher. She taught textiles and design. She was so lovely. We thought she was beautiful, and she was just so lovely. And there were three of us, 
newish Christians who would go to her place. She'd pick us up or we'd catch the bus from school to her place on a Friday afternoon and we'd, she'd make afternoon tea for us and she'd help us with our homework and we'd read the Bible together. And at the time, it just seemed the most normal thing in the world. I didn't think to myself, hmm, I think she's discipling us. Hmm, I see, she's opening the Bible. Ah, that's interesting, and we're praying together. Ah, that's what you do. I wasn't thinking any of that. I was just thinking, when we meet with Sharon, as an older Christian, she's encouraging us to understand the Bible by reading it with her. I think that um, one-to-one is like that. Except I think that um, for those who are teenagers and, and younger people, teenagers, um, one-to-one can be quite, it's so intimate that it can be a little overwhelming. So for teenagers, I think it's better to be in like a group of two or three with someone who is discipling them by opening the Bible and reading and praying. Um, but it, it is a great model for how to encourage people in their growth as Christians um, as I, I mentioned that I'm doing that with Saskia, and uh, it's a great joy for me um, to uh, read the Bible with her. And again, I mentioned this morning that we can easily underestimate the power of the gospel, and we can easily underestimate the power of reading God's word that changes people's lives. You know, there's a, um, one of our graduates, uh, before he became a Christian, he was a, a refugee in, he was from Cambodia. And uh, he uh, was a refugee in a camp, I, I forget where, Thailand or the Philippines. And um, there were Christians who would bring Bibles in to the camp. And uh, that was very popular. They, people loved getting these Bibles. Do you know why? Because the paper is actually really good for rolling cigarettes. And so um, they would make, work their way through the Bible by rolling cigarettes with the paper. And then there was one page that had been ripped out that Wooty read and it started him thinking about who Jesus is. That was a starting point for him. So he said that, you know, that he became a Christian through reading this one piece of paper. He said that he, for many years, he was breathing in the word of God before that. <laughs> but but he, um, he became a Christian through first reading the Bible. And I'm thinking to myself, wow, Really? He became a Christian through reading the Bible. I'm betraying my heart here because, yes, that's what the Bible says. That's what John says in John chapter 20, that uh, this is written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Son of God and by believing in him you will have life. These things are written for that reason. And uh, so uh, to be able to meet with people and to encourage them in reading this spirit-inspired word of God is a great joy and a privilege. And so I want to talk about that. Um, now, I know that uh, we're, we're kind of, I don't know whether... We've got time, but um, it will make it more interactive, which won't make for good um, uh, taping purposes. Uh, but I can, in, I can direct you to another seminar that I did on one-to-one, which is a lot more structured if you wanted to get something else, and if it's not recorded and you want to hear something more on tape about uh, one-to-one. Um, I remember re- uh, reading somewhere or thinking, uh, someone said that, um, that the biggest trend, the biggest uh, hit thing to hit Western society in recent times, second only to IT, is life coaching. Uh, people will pay a lot of money for life coaching in business and in health. You know, so personal trainers is, is a way of life coaching. Um, so nutrition. And I've even heard of uh, there are life coaches for preschoolers, which seems a little overreacting to me, but that people see the benefit 
people recognise the value of meeting up with someone to help them figure out how they can be better at whatever it is they want to be better at. I think that we need to um, take note of that. There is great value in meeting up with someone who can encourage, in a mutual way, encouraging each other as Christians by opening God's word, reading the Bible. And I think that we can underestimate the power of that. Um, uh, it's, not the, it's not seen to be strategic. I think right now church planting is, uh, is seen to be strategic. If you're involved in church planting, you're really on the cutting edge of, of what's happening in the Christian world. One-to-one Bible reading doesn't really have that, it doesn't feel that sexy. You know, it doesn't look like, yes, what are you doing at the moment? I'm reading the Bible with someone, so, wow. If we don't have that reaction, we go, oh, yeah, what else are you doing? Because it's really not seen as, um, you know, razzle-dazzle up front. It's behind the scenes. But I think uh, it is uh, something that is very strategic and it's something that many of us can do. You don't have to go to Bible college. You don't have to have a theological degree. It's something that many of us can be involved in. And if we are involved in that, what it does is it, it builds depth in the church. It builds maturity in believers. I don't know if you know the name Big Kev. What do you think of when you think of Big Kev? Big Kev uh, was quite well known. Well, I don't know. Obviously, not very well known at all. But uh, he, uh, many years ago, he was uh, he promoted cleaning products, and he had a catch cry. You know what that catch cry was? I'm excited about cleaning products. But what I would love for us, as we think about one to one, is to be Big Kevs when it comes to one-to-one discipleship, that as we leave today, uh, that we're thinking, yes, I can do this. I want to be a part of this. I want to actually, even if you think, well, I can't, I can't, I don't feel confident enough to, to take the initiative, but maybe I can be doing it with someone who can, can encourage me. Let's be big Kevs. Anyway, I'll tell you why I think we can be big Kevs as we go along. Um, I think... Uh, uh, there's a book by um, Carson, which I don't think is on the, the thing. Don Carson wrote a book um, called A Call to Spiritual Reformation. It's a book on prayer. But he asks a question in the beginning of the book. Uh, what do Christians most urgently need? And he said, well, some people might say evangelism skills or he might, or we need to do more social justice, justice and mercy, or we might need to do church planting. What do we most urgently need? He said we most urgently need to know God better. He wrote a book about prayer to say that, that prayer is a demonstration that we do know God, but it also nurtures that, that uh, knowledge of God. Well, how do we know God better? By spending time with him. How do we know God better? By spending time with him and with other people. And so we sit under God's word from the pulpit. We sit under God's word in Bible studies. We can also one-on-one, and women are good at this. This plays to our strength. This plays to our strength of relationship where we can open the Bible together, read the Bible together, and encourage one another. So um, I've got a, a quote. Well, I've mentioned Vaughan Roberts on your outlines there as well. And he talks about, do you know Vaughan Roberts? Uh, he's a leader in uh, the UK in a, in a fairly large church. He's written quite a few books. Uh, he talks about, in a book called um, Battles Christians Face, a chapter on keeping spiritually fresh. And he, and he talks about how does he keep spiritually fresh? By keeping an open Bible. How do we keep an open Bible? In our daily times, in our Bible studies, but in one-to-one we have an open Bible as we read together and encourage one another. So anytime you feel a big Kev moment, just call out, I'm excited. No, I don't do that. 
Maybe quietly in your heart you can do that. Now, because of the time of the day, I, I thought maybe rather than me tell you uh, about these verses, I've got some verses written down there. Maybe we can just get, um, we've got three, three groups and I thought maybe you could just talk to the person next to you or, or in twos or threes. And this, this group can look at 1 Peter chapter 2, specifically, um, let's say, uh, verses, verses 1 to 3. So look at the, those verses. Think about how does 1 Peter 2, 1 to 3 contribute to our discussion about the importance of reading the Bible and then by extrapolation reading the Bible with someone else. So you guys look at that. And then maybe if um, uh, this group here in twos or threes have a look at John 20 verse 31. So 1 Peter 2, verses 1 to 3, John 20, 31. Read that verse. Think about what does this tell us about God's word and then by extrapolation how we can apply that to one-to-one and the importance of one-to-one. And then this group in twos or threes, if you can look at 1 Corinthians 10, um, look at the whole, whole from 1 to 13, but specifically 11 to 13. Does this contribute at all to how we view God's word and why we need to be reading God's word together. Now I'm going to have to sort of give you a time limit. Five minutes. Come back and share something. I'll take that as a yes. Okay so uh, our our, uh, one Peter women, um, let me ask you a few questions first. Who is the letter written to? Who's writing the letter? Peter, the apostle Peter. Who's he writing to? Scattered Christians, probably, uh, well, there's a debate about whether they're Jewish Christians or Gentile Christians. It actually doesn't necessarily have an impact, um, but there, there, um, there are little signs in there that, that would support both views. Um, and tell, what, how does this contribute, these verses, let me just read these verses for those who haven't opened them up. So Peter writes, he says, um, therefore, and he's writing in, in the context of them becoming Christians through the imperishable, the living and enduring word of God, he says, therefore, rid yourselves of all malice and all deceit, hypocrisy, envy and slander of every kind, like newborn babies crave pure spiritual milk so that by it you may grow up in your salvation, now that you have tasted that the Lord is good. What Does this contribute to our discussion on the importance of opening the Bible and reading it with others? What's the impact of... of reading the Bible. Yes. yes, they've tasted that the Lord is good. And so he says, like newborn babies, do you think he's talk, writing to, to Christians because they're new Christians, baby Christians? No. What, why does he mention newborn babies then? They do. Now, I don't, correct me if I'm wrong, but if you, we've got some women with newborn babies here. If you do that to your newborn baby, what does the baby do? turns it's instinctive turns to to have milk and what peter is saying here is that be like that you've tasted that it is good this is how you grow up i want you to grow up as christians so i want you to to keep craving keep going for that pure spiritual milk of god's word because that's how you grow up now when we think about one to one that's how we can encourage each other in growth Yes. Yes. 
could be. Could be. I think the focus is is the purities on the, the word, the pure spiritual milk. But um, like a child, you know, th- th- here's an opportunity to grow up with something that is good. You know, children, young children will take, there, there is a dependence uh, that is demonstrated by this. There is a, a desire to want to have what is good. We need to be like babies in that sense. There is, you know, we talked this morning about the flow-on effect of the gospel. What Peter is saying in this letter is he's saying, here is who you are. You are chosen according to the foreknowledge of God the Father. You've been sprinkled by the blood of Jesus for obedience. You have an inheritance that can never perish, spoil, or fade. You have, you have a, a faith that is in continuity with the Old Testament. The prophets long to understand what you know to be true. So now you be holy. So there's a sense in which how we live now is a flow-on effect. We don't earn our salvation, but in Christ there is a flow-on effect of the gospel, which means that there's a sense in which we do get rid of those things that don't belong to our life in Christ, and, and we grow up by, by feeding on, on what God says in his word and growing up in that. So, yeah, there's a, there's a getting rid of, and then there's a, a taking on, and the taking on is the word of God. Yeah. A dis- like getting rid of the old and putting on the new. And we, that's what Paul says in Colossians, doesn't he, in chapter 3. Yeah, exactly. What I love about reading the Bible is there's a beautiful continuity. You read 1 Peter and you think, oh, that's what Paul says in Colossians. You read Colossians and you think, oh, that's what John says in John. So, you know, I mean, it's beautiful because they're different authors in different times. I mean, the New Testament writers are around the same time, but in the Old Testament there's continuity too. Different ages and it's the same message. God's redeeming love. Exactly. And when there's reference to scripture in the New Testament, they're referring mostly to the Old Covenant, Old Testament. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Thank you, 1 Peter ladies. That was very well done. Okay, now we have our John ladies. Um, what do we know about the, the Gospel of John, just for context? Do we know, what do we, what do we know? Who's John? He's an apostle John. He was, uh, he was one of the 12 disciples. What happened to John in the end? He was exiled. He was probably the only one or one of the only ones that didn't actually get executed. What happened to his brother James? Yeah. And there was only one, one verse um, given to that in, um, I forget which, um, which gospel it is. Is it the gospel or in Acts? It's in Acts where we read about James's beheading. Um, anyway, so uh, here's John. And uh, this is kind of a purpose statement, I think. Um, what does he say? Um, These are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. How does this contribute to our discussion on the importance of opening the Bible with someone else and reading with someone else? Does that help us in our discussion? Any thoughts? The Son of God. Yes, exactly. Exactly. So that these things are written so that people would know Jesus and in knowing Jesus they have life and therefore this will actually enable people to know Jesus. So when we meet with someone one-on-one, 
They, they, if they're a Christian, it helps them to understand better who Jesus is. If we're meeting with a non-Christian, which sometimes may happen, it helps people to know Jesus. It's like my friend Vuti, who became a Christian through reading the Bible. And you hear about these stories about, you know, someone throws a Bible out of a train and someone picks it up. Have you heard those stories? And there's another student at our college, uh, Liambo, and uh, he's a Chinese academic, and, uh, and his supervisor threw a Bible in a bin. And he picked it out of the, the bin and he read it, became a Christian. And you think, really? <laughs> yes, really, Jenny. This word actually helps people to know Jesus. That's right. There's an interesting thing um, at the end of John's Gospel. He says, uh, last verse, Jesus did many other things as well. If every one of them were written down, I suppose that even the whole world would not have room for the books that were written, that would be written. A little bit of hyperbole there, but um, the point is that what is included in the Gospels has been included for a reason. Not everything that Jesus did was written down. So what was written down was written down with a purpose. And John says the purpose, the, the overriding purpose is that people would know Jesus. Now, when we read the Bible one-to-one, that's what we're doing. We're helping people to know Jesus better. Yeah. Yes. 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 You know, Jesus made lots of promises, and they seem a little bit out there. He said to the woman of the well. Um, if, you, if you knew the person you were talking to, then you would know the person who would get, bring you water, spring up to eternal life. In other words, he was saying, uh, I can give you sat- complete satisfaction. Complete satisfaction. Now, she didn't know who she was talking to at first, but in the end, he, she says, well, look, well, let's just wait for the Messiah to come, and when he comes, we'll ask him and he'll sort it out. And what does Jesus say to her? I who speak to you am he. I am the one you're waiting for. I am the one who can give you full, complete satisfaction. That's what Jesus promises. Then she brought all this. What an evangelist she was. She runs back to town and says, guess what, I met someone who told me everything I ever did in my life. Well, that's also a little bit of exaggeration. But, uh, uh, but, and then the, he, Jesus stays with the Samaritans. That's shocking in itself. When the disciples said, should we pour down fire on these Samaritan villages? What do you think, Lord? Anyway, they didn't have a clue, I think. Okay. Um, gives us the reason why the gospel is written? Yes, that's right. Well, that's how John, that's right. So John doesn't, so the other, the synoptic gospels, Matthew, Mark and Luke, have a whole lot of other miracles that Jesus did. John grouped his, his how he put his gospel together was in terms of signs, and the signs pointed to who Jesus is. I am the bread of life. I am the way, the truth, and the life, and so on. Yeah. Yeah. Point them to Jesus. 
Exactly, just like that's what signs do, don't they? Yeah. Thank you for that. Pardon? No, that's right. What would Jesus do doesn't always apply, does it? Because uh, what Jesus did is he, as the unique son of God. Yeah, yeah, that's right. Thank you for that. Okay, 1 Corinthians 10 ladies. Uh, let's just have a quick look at that. And then we'll go to some uh, practical matters of one-to-one so that we know what we're we're talking about. Um, Let me just read these verses, some of these verses, and then um, we'll think about how this contributes to our uh, discussion on reading the Bible and reading the Bible Uh, one-to-one. Firstly, with 1 Corinthians, what was the church like in Corinth? Was it the model church where you think, that's what I want to be like? Divided, they were fighting. They, I follow Paulus. I follow Paul. Well, I follow Christ. Yep. Sexual immorality, condoning sexual immorality. Some, you know, I've heard Paul says that there's a man in your congregation who's sleeping with his father's wife, and you don't mind taking people to court. Unloving. One Corinthians thirteen. Love is patient. You're not. Love is kind. You're not being kind. See, we think it's a romantic, beautiful passage about love. It's a rebuke for these Corinthians. So he's writing to people that he knows and loves, mind you, and he thanks God for them in the beginning of the letter. But this is what uh, he says in chapter 10. He says, I don't want you to be ignorant of the fact, brothers and sisters, that our forefathers were all under the cloud and that they all passed through the sea. They were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea. What are they, what's he talking about at that point? What particular event is he talking about? The Exodus. So these are all Exodus-related and wilderness-wandering-related events. They all ate the same spiritual food, manna, but, I mean, he's using it metaphorically as well, drank the same spiritual drink, for they drank from the spiritual rock that accompanied them, and that rock was Christ. That's a fairly enigmatic statement right there. It's hard to understand what he's saying. Nevertheless, God was not pleased with most of them. Their bodies were scattered over the desert. Now, these things occurred as examples to keep us... So they've written for us, he's saying, from setting our hearts on evil things as they did. So don't be idolaters. As some of them were, as it was written, the people sat down to eat and drink and got up to indulge in pagan reverie, probably referring to an, uh, an incident in Numbers uh, where they, had a, um, they indulged in uh, orgies with the Midianite women. We should not commit sexual immorality, as some of them did, and in one day 23,000 of them died. That could also refer to that incident. We should not test the Lord, as some of them did, and were killed by snakes. That's also in Numbers. Um, do you remember that? And what does Moses do? He has to make a snake and raises it, that up and you look at the snake. Why do they have to look at the snake? Because they're looking at their judgment. Why do we look at the cross? We see the love of God. We also see the judgment that is poured out on him and not us. So there's a lot of lovely connections. And he says, don't grumble as some of them did and were killed by the destroying angel. Now, here's the, here's the point. These things happened to them as examples and were written down as, as warnings for us on whom the fulfilment of the ages has come. So if you think you're standing firm, be careful that you don't fall. So what, how does this contribute? Paul's pointing back to events with God's people and he's saying you need to know these things because... What, how does this contribute? It serves as warnings. exactly what he says. It serves as warnings, yeah. So we learn... We learn how to live by exhortation, by encouragement, 
and by examples from the past of where people had failed. I look at the Israelites and I think, idiots. What were they thinking? They had the cloud, they had the fire. They'd seen the Red Sea part. What were they thinking? Well, then I have to stop a minute and think, I'm just like that. Just like that. I need reminders of what the human condition is. Because all through the Old Testament, there are these failure, failure, failure. And even right after the exile and the return of the exiles and they come back to Jerusalem and there's the building of the wall and everything's wonderful, what do we read? The end of Nehemiah and the end of Malachi, that they're failing again. What's it going to take? God in the flesh coming and doing what we could never do. So these are warnings. And so when we read God's word, whether it's on our own, whether it's in Bible studies and one-to-one, we are reminded of the human condition and our need of grace, just like these people who failed. So they're warnings for us so that we don't do the same thing. That's what Paul's saying to the Corinthians. So that's, I mean, there's so much more we could be saying. And I I just want to help us think biblically on the whole issue of the Bible and uh, the importance of the Bible. And, And see, we have the great privilege in our country of reading it in our heart language. A lot of people don't have that privilege or the freedom to open the Bible. We do. So we need to grab hold of that. Anything else you want to say on those verses until uh, before we move on? Yes. Yes. We, when we read the Bible, yeah, we think rightly about our sin, don't we? And we think rightly about, about God and what he's done for us. We think rightly about this world. We need to keep reading it. It's, no, it's not a guarantee that if we read our Bibles in our quiet times or in a, in a one-to-one that uh, everything's going to be hunky-dory. No, that's, we, we live in a world that isn't hunky-dory. Bad things happen. Hard things happen. But if we, if we know that we're walking through with, with the one who knows us and loves us and we have a growing understanding of that, then uh, we're in very safe hands, very safe hands. There's no safer place to be. And we know that when we keep spending time in God's word. Yes, it is. Yes. 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 It speaks of God's character. That's right. No temptation has overtaken us that is not common to man, and God gives us a way through. Yes. Yes. Yes, that's right. So um, I think that sometimes it might feel like he's giving us something we can't bear. That's how it feels sometimes. And sometimes, you know, we have to accept the fact that there are things that are hard, that are painful, that we don't understand. But it is a, a lovely reminder of the character of God that even in the hardest times that we're safe in his hands. I, I, when people say, what, what's so good about being a Christian? 
There's so many things that are good, but it's just that wonderful hope, eternal hope and that security. That nothing happens that's, not, that's, that's beyond him. Nothing that's not redeemable. And I, I always feel so safe, whatever the circumstances, whatever is disappointing or whatever it is. Okay, so I think that the next point I have is uh, that there are some principles that are good to take hold of. That is, firstly, that the conviction that, that uh, the Bible, Scripture, is the Word of God. If we have that conviction, if we are convinced that this is the Word of God, then we're more likely to read this than we are to read a book about the Bible. Now, I'm not saying that books about the Bible are not good and helpful. They are. But why would you go to a book about the Bible when you can go to the Bible? So if we have that conviction that it is the word of God, then we're more likely to read the Bible rather than a book about the Bible. Um, If we recognise the importance of um, the Bible and also the power of modelling, by that I mean that what we do with others... So what Sharon did with us as teenagers, I didn't know she was modelling a really good pattern of discipleship, but she was. So when I started to disciple people one-on-one or in small groups, but mainly one-on-one, what was I going to do? I I hadn't been taught how to disciple, but I knew how I'd been discipled, and so that's what I did. So as we meet with people one-on-one then that's what we can do. We can not only say, this is the word of God, we need to listen, but this is how to do it. And you don't even have to say it. But as you do it, people start to sort of take that on board without the words. It's a model of what is important. Same as um, not only reading the Bible as a model, but how we do that systematically. Um, I, have a, um, I have a real love for expository preaching uh, women to women. And uh, I find it much easier to rather than to be given a topic, Jenny, can you speak on the topic of dot, 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 and then I've got to figure out, well, where does it say that in the Bible and how can I, you know, are there bits and pieces? Or, but what I prefer is to, to say, well, do you want to speak on, the, on 1 Corinthians and then allow what God says in his word in 1 Corinthians to dominate, to be the theme of the conference or the talk or whatever. Similarly, when we do one-to-one, we want to allow God to speak. We want to give God the microphone, if you like. And so what we want to do is systematically work through. So when we read the Bible with someone one-on-one, don't just do a bit of cherry-picking, but actually sit in one spot and read through it. Choose a book of the Bible and then just work your way through that chapter by chapter. And allow God to speak rather than us to determine what we're going to think about and, and, and uh, focus on. So that's a conviction that, that, that uh, what we model is, is most helpful. And also a recognition that one-to-one ministry is a partnership. Now, it may be, I think actually it usually works this way, that there are an older Christian meeting with a younger Christian, and older in terms of maturity but also age, and they'll be driving it more so. But it must never be a kind of a you know, guru, uh, you know, sit down and listen to what I have to say about the Bible and then ask any questions and then we'll finish off there. It's actually a two-way street. It's a partnership. That's the beauty of one-to-one. We learn from each other with whatever our, our background is. And so it's, it's, uh, it's a conviction about Scripture that it's the Word of God. Therefore, we read the Bible. Uh, we model what is most helpful. That is, it's to be systematic and it's a partnership. I'm flying through it because I think people are... Do you, you, want, me, do you want to sort of say when you want me to finish? Five more minutes. Okay. All right. Let me tell you what I do in terms of one-to-one, and this might give you a few ideas about what you can do. 
Um, I meet, uh, currently I'm meeting with three students at the college in a one-to-one context. So we do a whole lot of other things with the students, lecturing and, and a whole lot of other stuff, but I also meet with three students each year one-on-one. And with each one, we meet together in the beginning of the year and uh, I say to them, because I'm, I'm the older one, so I tend to drive a little bit more, but they're mature Christians, they're preparing for ministry. I say, have you got any particular book of the Bible you want to read? And uh, they might say, oh, well, I wouldn't mind reading through whatever. And so we work that out together. And then we work out that we meet once a fortnight for about an hour and a half or two hours. So with one student, I'm reading through Nehemiah. With another student, we're reading through Judges. Another student, we're reading through John. So in some ways, kind of random selections. But once we've decided on the book of the Bible, then every fortnight we read one chapter. There's no preparation in between, necessarily. You might want to do some preparation, but you both got to do it or neither. So I find that actually it's good to come cold. And so when we read Nehemiah chapter 5, we both come to Nehemiah reading, uh, reading chapter 5 together. And then what we do, and there's nothing scientific about it. In the words of Kath and Kim, you know, it's not rocket surgery. <laughs> you read the chapter and then... You, we, I just, we, one or the other says, oh, I thought that was interesting about Nehemiah and uh, how he prays and then, and then he arms the, the guards. Yeah, that is interesting, isn't it? So you start to sort of just sort of chat about it, talk about it. And then after a little while you might say, well, look, well, let's pray. And so you might pray about what you've read. You might pray about what you've talked about. You might pray for each other in terms of the coming week. That's not too hard, is it? I think most of us could be involved in that. And uh, so um, uh, sometimes I have used uh, a low-tech commentary, um, but generally speaking, I want to model that this is actually all we need to read. There's a doctrine called the doctrine of perspicuity, which means that the Bible is clear. Sadly, the word perspicuity is not, and so it's not always a helpful one. Uh, other, Just a few other practical matters. Um, for my, um, oh, I think someone's saying it's time to finish, Jenny. Um, uh, sometime, in my context of the Bible College students, we meet for a year and then it finishes. And then I meet with three more students in the next year. So that has a natural turnaround. But sometimes in one-to-one, it's hard to actually find an end point. So it's good if you're going to meet up with someone to say, well, why don't we meet for six months and then see how we go? Well, why don't we meet for a year and see how we go? But you don't want to have an open-ended thing just in case one or the other wants to get off the merry-go-round and they don't quite know how to get off. It might be awkward. So you might want to suggest, uh, when, when you decide that you want to meet with someone one-to-one, um, decide um, for how long, um, decide um, what you're going to read, um, how often, and be realistic about your commitments. Um, so um, if you've got too much on, you need to see this as a commitment but maybe once a fortnight. I wouldn't do anything less than one, once a fortnight. Once a month, um, if you miss one, then you've kind of, you're losing momentum. Um, who, who is it that you can meet with? I think anyone can benefit from one-to-one. Um, a, a new Christian will, will benefit. A younger Christian will benefit. Um, perhaps someone who is wanting to grow in, in terms of leadership can benefit. Um, someone who's not yet a Christian can benefit. All of us can benefit. Um, so, uh, you know, there might be women even now that you're thinking you wouldn't mind, you'd love to meet with them one-on-one and maybe you can initiate that. I think there might be an email address for people to, 
to think about that as well. Um, where would you meet? I meet in my office, but um, sometimes a church building works, sometimes it doesn't work. Sometimes a coffee shop works. I don't think coffee shops work so well in that people might feel uncomfortable praying. And prayer is important in that context. It's not just, it is Bible reading, but it's also praying with each other, and it's also in the context of a relationship. So you want to have time to pray with each other. And, um, and in terms of preparation, um, I don't think there is any preparation except to pray. Pray for each other. Pray that you will grow in this context. Pray that you'll have wisdom as you read the Bible together. And, uh, and, and keep praying that, uh, that this ministry will grow beyond uh, just the two of you. It is a real multiplying ministry and one that really uh, does bless the church. Um, here's a quote from Peter Brain, or P. Brain as I like to call him. No, I, I know Peter. He's, he's a good guy. Anyway, um, he's, he was Bishop of Armidale and uh, he wrote about reading the Bible not in the context of one-to-one, but it works, that reading the Bible, reading scripture, meditating upon it and applying it and praying it personally keeps the joy and sheer privilege of belonging to the Lord alive. That's what we want, isn't it? I mean, sometimes the Christian life can be hard, but in the, in the busyness of life we lose the fact that there is great joy in being in Christ. It is a great privilege And so to read the Bible in our devotional times, in our Bible studies, as we sit under the word from the pulpit and in one-to-one, it helps to keep that that joy and the sheer privilege of being in Christ at at the forefront of our lives. And I've got a quote from Hebrews 12. Is that written on your notes, the actual quote? Let me just read those verses as I finish. Uh, the writer, Hebrew writer, says, Therefore, since we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, and he refers to that in chapter 11, let us throw off everything that hinders and the sin that so easily entangles and let us run with perseverance the race marked out for us, or let us walk in Christ and keep walking. Uh, Let us fix our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, scorning its shame, and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Consider him who endured such opposition from sinful men so that you will not grow weary and lose heart. One-to-one is a great way to persevere. It's a great way to not grow weary and lose heart. How about if I pray and then uh, we'll finish up. Father, uh, we thank you for this time, even as rushed as it feels, to think about the whole area of one-to-one. And we pray, dear Father, even now that you'll be laying it on people's hearts uh, in terms of people, in terms of who we can be meeting up with. And may you grow your church uh, through the opening of your word, through people coming to know Jesus in, in deeper measure, through the reading and through the praying and through the context of a relationship in one-to-one. We thank you for this, this ministry and we pray that this will be something that will be a feature of our churches. Thank you that you use your word to teach us about how we are to live in the light of your grace and we learn of your grace in your word as well we thank you father and we thank you for all that we've been reminded of today please father may we be not just be hearers of your word but doers and may that be for the glory of the lord jesus christ in whose name we pray amen